Well, last week we started thinking about how God molded David into a king. We saw in chapter 16 a few weeks ago that uh, he was anointed king as a young man. Some would say as young as 12 years old. And then in chapter 17 we saw sometime after that when he was introduced to the people of Israel in the amazing and wonderful battle with Goliath. And by the way, how many of you are watching the Bible on the History Channel? Anybody watching that? Tonight is supposed to be the battle with Goliath. I don't know how accurate it will be, but it's supposed to be on there, so you might want to watch that. But then in chapter 18, we saw that he came to Saul, and he began serving in the court of Saul. And we saw what I believe was God preparing him through a variety of ways to become the future king of Israel. Years passed between chapter 16 when he was anointed and the time that he actually took the throne. And all of the experiences that took place during those years, I think, were preparation for God molding him into a king. Last week, we learned two ways that we think God molded him. We think God molded him, number one, through his work, through his service, through all of the activities and experiences that he was uh, engaged in during those years. And we also learned last week that God used friendship, specifically the friendship with Jonathan, Saul's son, which had a tremendous impact on the life of David. Well, today I'd like us to notice two other ways that I think God molded David into a king. God molded David through family, and God molded David through trouble. Now, you're going to have to keep your Bibles at hand a little bit this morning, because we're going to jump all around in here. But let's start off by uh, uh, kind of picking up where we left off last week, and let's look at verse number 17 of chapter 18, and uh, notice how God molded David through family. First Samuel chapter 18 Verse 17, then Saul said to David, here is my older daughter Mirab, I will give her to you as a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, let my hand not be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. So David said to Saul, who am I and what is my life or my father's family in Israel that I should be son-in-law to the king? But it happened at the time when Mirab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, that she was given to Adriel, the Maholathite, as a wife. Now Michael, Saul's daughter, loved David, and they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. And Saul said, I will give her to him, that she may be a snare to him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, you shall be my son-in-law today. Jump down to verse number 28. Actually, the very last part of verse 27. Then Saul gave him Michael, his daughter, as a wife. Thus Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David, and that Michael, Saul's daughter, Loved him. We have already learned that a little bit about David's family. Obviously, he had a father and a mother. His father was Jesse, and we know that he had seven brothers. We learned that in uh, in chapter sixteen, and so we we know a little bit about his family already. But we would have to say, wouldn't we, that when it comes to the matter of family, family matters, wouldn't we have to say that David is difficult to pin down? He's difficult to decide whether he's a good example or a bad example. In these things, because, you know, like, like all the rest of us, there are some areas where he seemed to be very successful at it, and there were some areas where he seemed to be an abject failure at it. Some would argue that this was David's weakest area, the area of family. We just read about his marriage to Michael, and although that marriage seemed to start well, and in the early days it seemed to go well, if we continue reading, we're going to find out that eventually it did not end. And as we move along in David's life, we're going to find that he is uh, married to multiple wives. Always a problematic thing for us as we look at that and we try to get our mind into the culture of the day and understand that uh, 
It's always, it, it, it always draws into question somebody's family mentality, I suppose. And of course, one of the most well-known incidents in David's life would, of course, be the adulterous affair that he had with Bathsheba, which certainly speaks to David's family and to all of those matters. And so some people would argue that failure was David's weakest area. And yet, others would argue that he actually showed some pretty good things in this area. Uh, some would say that it was political expediency, and it was the culture of the day, this whole matter of marrying multiple wives. And as we study out some of his wives, we, we'll get to the story of Abigail, and, and we'll get to the story of Bathsheba, and we'll find out that uh, uh, after all of that was taken care of, he actually cared for these women. And there was apparently a good relationship there. He seemed to be involved with most of his children. As we come to continue to read, we're going to come eventually to the story of Absalom. Well, a sad story is the story of Absalom, his son. Absalom, his son, who betrayed him and rebelled against him and, and actually usurped the kingdom from him and ran him out of his own town and actually slept with his own wives, with David's wives in front of all of Israel. Absalom, terrible. And yet, David's love for Absalom comes out so strongly in the story. He wept and mourned for Absalom. He said, oh, Absalom, my son, would that I had died in your place. Amnon, we mentioned last week, another one of his sons who made horrible, horrible choices and uh, actually went so far as to rape his own sister. And yet we see in that story David's concern for Amnon. And perhaps one of the clearest places where we see that David must have been involved in the lives of his children is from the words of Solomon. Turn over to Proverbs chapter 4. Proverbs chapter 4. Solomon, of course, one of the sons of David, and uh, wrote the majority of the book of Proverbs, the wisest man perhaps that ever lived. And notice what he says in chapter 4, starting in verse 1. He says, Hear, my children, the instruction of a father. Give attention to no understanding, for I give you good doctrine. Do not forsake my law. When I was my father's son, tender and the only one in the sight of my mother, he also taught me and said to me, Let your heart retain my words, keep my commands and live. Get wisdom, get understanding. And so we read this and we realize that Solomon credited David with much of uh, of his thinking in these areas. And so it could be argued that David showed some strength in the area. He, he was far from perfect, but I don't think we can say he's an abject failure at the matter of family either. I think he was a man who struggled with relationships, just like most of us do. And he learned lessons which molded him into the man that God wanted him to be, molded him into the king that God was making him into be. As we look through some of these stories, I think we could find that David would tell us several lessons that he had learned as a result of his family relationships. Look at uh, chapter 19 and we'll see one. In chapter 19, I think David would have said, he learned that family is usually there for you. Family is usually there for you. Chapter 19, verse 11. Saul also sent messengers to David's house to watch him and to kill him in the morning. And Michael, David's wife, hid him, saying, If you do not save your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michael let David down through a window, and he went and fled and escaped. And Michael took an image and laid it in the bed, put a cover of goat's hair for his head, and covered it with clothes. So when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, He is sick. Then Saul sent the messengers back to see David, saying, Bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. And when the messengers had come in, there was the image in the bed with a cover of goat's hair for his head. Then Saul said to Michael, Why have you deceived me like this and sent my enemy away? 
so that he has escaped. At least in the early days of their marriage, Michael was there for him. Michael had his back. Michael was protecting him. And uh, she was there for him. Look over at chapter 22 and verse number 1. Chapter 22, verse 1. David therefore departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. So when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went there down there to him. And to everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was discontented gathered to him. So he became captain over them. And there were about 400 men with him. You might remember that way back in chapter 17 when he was standing against Goliath or thinking about standing against Goliath, but his brothers weren't exactly on his side. His brothers weren't there for him. But here we see that they were. And so I think if David were to stand here today and say some of the lessons he had learned from family, he would say family is there for you. Usually there for you. But I think he would also say something else. I think he would also say sometimes family hurts. Sometimes family can hurt you. Michael would later disappoint him. And as we're going to see as we continue to study, she would eventually uh, gravely disappoint him and turn against him. Absalom, his son, as we mentioned, will rebel terribly against him. Amnon, others, uh, terrible decisions and bring trouble and difficulty in his life. And so David would say, family sometimes hurts. But I think David would say, summing it all up, that family is overall important. Look at chapter 22, verse 3. 22 verse 3, David went from there to Mizpah of Moab, and he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and mother come here with you, till I know what God will do for me. So he brought them before the king of Moab, and they dwelt with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. And so with all David had going on in his life right now, and I realize we're just kind of jumping around, I hope you'll kind of read some of these things on your own and fill in the blanks, but with all that he's doing, running for his life from Saul, he takes the time to care for his mother. And for his father. And I think it's a wonderful picture of, uh, of what took place on the cross, by the way, when Jesus took care of his mother as he was dying for your sins and for mine. But it's also a reminder to us of how much he thought family was important. Well, there's all kinds of lessons that I think that he learned from family, but those are just a few. And all of them, all of them are saying to me that God used those relationships in his life, good and bad, that he had both, to mold him into the man that he needed to be in order to be king. But in addition to how God molded David through family, he also molded him another way. He molded him through trouble. Trouble. Go with me on a little journey now. The last time we saw David, David was in, uh, in the palace of, of uh, Saul and serving him there. But I want you to go with me on just a little journey now as to what's happening now in his life. Look at chapter 21, verse 1. Now David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech was afraid when he met David and said to him, Why are you alone and no one is with you? In chapter 21, we see it starting out with David is fleeing. David is running. He's running to a city called Nob. Interesting name for a city. But he's, he's fled there. And you might ask, why has he fled there? And he has fled there because the king, whom he has served faithfully now for all of these years, is literally trying to kill him. We just read where he tried to kill him in his very bed. Uh, with, with, uh, with, when he was living there with Michael. And so he's fled to Nob. Look at chapter 21, verse number 10. Then David arose and fled that day from before Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And so he's run to Nob. He doesn't feel safe in Nob. He runs to Gath, which was under the control, by the way, of the Philistines, whom, with whom he had recently been at war. And in one of the more humorous incidents in the Bible, I think this is one of those places where you almost have to laugh. While he had been with Ahimelech, he had said, you know what, I... 
I, I had to flee so fast that I didn't have time to take my weaponry or anything with me. Do you have a sword here? And Ahimelech said, and you can read about it in the verses prior there. Ahimelech says, well, I only have one sword here. It's the sword of Goliath, whom you slew. You can take that if you want. Now, now you remember what we told, we told the story. Goliath's sword was not a noble sword. It was a monstrous big thing. And I have to picture in my mind that as David had that sword strapped on, it was literally dragging on the ground. It had to be. And he went to the Philistines with the sword of Goliath strapped onto his side and dragging in the dirt. It tells us a little something, I think, about perhaps the frame of mind he was in. He was fleeing for his life, fleeing in fear. So he's gone to Nob, he's gone to Gath. Look at chapter 22, verse number 1. David therefore departed from there when they started eyeing him and wondered why he was standing there wearing Goliath's sword. He fled from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And there we see that 400 men joined themselves to him. He begins now uh, to, to, to build a following there. But he's still running. Chapter 22, verse 3. David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, please let my father and mother stay here. And so he leaves Adullam and he goes to Moab. Are you, are you following the timeline? Are you getting to see what's happening in David's life right here? He's run to Nob. He doesn't feel safe there. He's run to Gath. He doesn't feel safe there. He's run to the cave of Adullam. He doesn't feel safe there. He's run to Moab. He doesn't feel safe there. This time in his life, David was on the land. This time in David's life, he was fearing, he was running, he was fleeing from people who were trying to kill him. How's that line from the music man go? I got trouble. Trouble with a capital T? That's David and during this time of his life. He was in trouble. If ever there was a man who had trouble, it was David. If ever there was a man who could look back later in life and say, God used hard things to mold me into what I am today. It was David. And I think if we could sit David down right here and we could say, tell us some of the lessons that you learned from these troublous times in your life, I think he'd share a few. And I think these might be some he would share. I think he might say to us that sometimes trouble comes when we're just trying to do right. Trouble comes when we're just trying to do right. You know, David might point back to that time when he was just trying to serve his people and just trying to serve his God and just trying to serve his king by volunteering to go up against Goliath when no one else would do it and his brother stood against him and ridiculed him. He might point to that and say sometimes trouble comes when you're just trying to do right. He might speak of the times when he was just trying to do the service that he was, he was called to do. He was just trying to play his harp and soothe the raging spirit of King Saul who was out of his mind Raving with uh, whatever he was raving with. And while he was just trying to do what he was supposed to do, Saul multiple times took his spear and tried to pin him to the wall. And he might say there are times when trouble comes, when we're just trying to do right. There are certainly other examples of that in the Bible. Think about Joseph. Joseph was certainly not doing wrong. That's not the reason that he was thrown into prison. Joseph was thrown into prison because he was doing right. Joseph was thrown into prison because he refused to fall prey to the adulterous advantage, uh, advances of Potiphar's wife. And because he stood for the right, he ended up in prison. Paul spent years in prison. Was it because he committed some crime? No, it was because he stood for Christ and preached the gospel. You know, all around our world today, there are people who are persecuted. There are people who are suffering. There are people who are paying a tremendous price. Not because of some crime they have committed, but simply because they're trying to do right. And simply because they stand for and serve our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said, 
These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. We dare not water that down. We tend to want to water that down. We tend to want to think that applies to other people. It applies to Christians, all Christians. In the world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Paul told Timothy, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. I think David would say to us this morning, mark it down. If you're going to stick out your neck for Christ, the enemy is going to take notice. And you're going to have trouble simply because you're trying to do right. I think he might also say that sometimes trouble comes in the form of separation from those we love. Look over at uh, chapter 20 and verse 35. Chapter 20 and verse 35. At this particular point now, David is still, still in the service of Saul, but he is convinced that Saul is trying to kill him, and he and Jonathan have cooped up this signal. Jonathan is going to go check it out and let him know whether or not Saul is really trying to kill him. And if he is, David is going to run. Verse number 35, so it was in the morning that Jonathan went out into the field at the time appointed with David, and a little lad was with him. And then he said to his lad, now run, find the arrows which I shoot. And as the lad ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. When the lad had come to the place where the arrow was which Jonathan had shot, Jonathan cried out after the lad and said, Is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan cried out after the lad, Make haste, hurry, do not delay. So Jonathan's lad gathered up the arrows and came back to his master, but the lad did not know anything. Only Jonathan and David knew of the matter. Then Jonathan gave his weapons to his lad and said to him, Go carry them to the city. That was the signal. If I shoot the arrows beyond him and I say that to him, then you'll know. Saul is going to kill you and you need to leave. Verse 41, as soon as the lad had gone, David arose from a place toward the south, fell on his face to the ground, and bowed down three times. And they kissed one another, and they wept together, but David more so. Then Jonathan said to David, go in peace, since we have both sworn in the name of the Lord, saying, May the Lord be between you and me, and between your descendants and my descendants forever. So he arose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. You know, when God calls you to serve him, it may indeed be a call to separate from those he loved. David no doubt had more friends than just Jonathan. David had been in the palace for some time now, and he had no doubt made some other relationships, but all that was affected when he had to run. And the primary relationship, his friendship with Jonathan, was for all intents and purposes uh, pretty much severed because uh, he had to leave. You know, those who are called to serve God in foreign lands are very aware of this kind of thing. They go, they leave family and friends behind. They know about this form of suffering. Ken and Judy Booth were with us just not very long ago. And Ken and Judy Booth very soon will be saying goodbye to family members and friends here. And going to the other side of the world. Separation from those they love. We have a sister, Sarah Troyer. You can read about her back there. She's one of my favorites of all the missionaries we support. She's a missionary to Indonesia with New Tribes Mission. And Sarah is... I don't know, 22 or something like that, a very young lady. And if you read her prayer letters that are posted back there, you'll notice that several times in her prayer letters she talks about the pain of separation from her family. Here's a young lady all, who all by herself moved to Indonesia, left her family behind. And she knows, she would agree, that trouble sometimes comes in the form of separation from those we love. You see, David would say God used that. He used that separation to mold him into what he needed to be for him. Ken and Judy would say the same thing. Sarah would no doubt say the same thing. 
David would say another thing to us. Look at chapter 21, verse number 1. Chapter 21, verse 1, he would say sometimes, sometimes it gets so bad, the trouble gets so bad that we find ourselves standing alone. Now David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech was afraid when he met David and said to him, Why are you alone and no one is with you? You know, I don't know that I've ever noticed that before as I've studied through this passage of Scripture. In all of David's sufferings and trials, I've got to imagine that that was the worst part of it all. Alone. Alone. Here he was running. Why are you alone? Why is nobody with you? There is a famous picture which most of you have probably seen of John Kennedy when he was president. He is standing in his office. He is leaning over his desk. And as I recall, he's got his back to the camera. It's kind of a silhouette thing. And he's all by himself in the Oval Office. And I believe the caption of the picture is the loneliest job in the world. This past week, the news was abuzz with the story of Senator Rand Paul filibustering on the Senate floor for 13 plus hours. I saw a photograph after that was over. And uh, it showed him walking to his car in the middle of the night after it was over. There was one car in the parking lot. And Rand Paul was the only person in the parking lot as he walked alone to his car. And regardless of our politics or what we think about either of those guys, I don't mention those guys for any political reason. Only just to point that they're an image of somebody standing alone. And can we not and must we not admire somebody who would stand alone on principle? It is such a rare thing. And David knew what it was to be alone, to stand alone, to run alone. And if we determine that we're going to live for Christ, many times we're going to find we have to stand alone too. David would say one other thing to us. Look at chapter 22, verse 6. When Saul heard that David and the men who were with him had been discovered. Now Saul was staying in Gibeah under a tamarisk tree in Ramah with his spear in his hand and all his servants standing about him. Then Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, you Benjamites, will the son of Jesse... Give every one of you fields and vineyards and make you all captains of thousands and captains of hundreds. All of you have conspired against me and there is no one who reveals to me that my son has made a covenant with the son of Jesse. And there is not one of you who is sorry for me or reveals to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as it is this day. And you can go on and you can read. But what's happening here is David now has declared, or Saul now has declared open war with David. And he is no longer hiding any of it. Open enmity. Open enmity. He's stirring up all the people trying to turn them against David. And I have to think that David must have wondered as he's running, what in the world did I ever do to deserve this? What did I ever do to deserve enemies? He had only tried to do right. He had not been an enemy to any of these people. Actually, he'd been their friend. But now the very people that he had actually tried to help, were turning against him in open enmity and even betrayal. Read about Doeg, the Edomite in there, if you want to read about a disgusting human being. Betrayed David. It must have been a bitter pill to swallow. You know, one of the things that I think young Christians struggle with a lot is to, is to understand the fact that the world hates us. The world hates Christianity. And if you're in the room this morning and you haven't figured that out, let me make it as plain for you as I can. The world hates Christianity. If you're a Christian, the world hates you. 
And, and David is just a picture of that. If you see something on television where the world is mocking Christianity, you ought not be surprised. Because the world hates Christianity. Kids in public school, when you find your teachers in the curriculum teaching things that are mocking of Christianity, you ought not be surprised. The world hates Christianity. And the world hates Christianity because it hates Christ. The Apostle John said, do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. And Jesus said, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. We might be surprised by those truths. But so too must David have been surprised to discover that in spite of all his good intentions and all that he was trying to do, he had enemies who truly wanted to destroy him. Well, there might be more, but I think David would tell us all those lessons he learned from the trouble that came into his life. And I think he would say that God used every one of those things to mold him into the man that he was supposed to be. But I think we'll stop right there. There's a lot more that we can learn from this passage, this, this period of time in David's life. And we will talk about it a little bit more next week, but we're going uh, to talk about it from a slightly different angle. Next week, we're going to ask ourselves the question, how did David respond to the trouble in his life? How did he react to the difficulties? But I want us to close this morning by reminding ourselves of a challenge that this presents to you and to me. Because what was true of David is true of us. These same things are true of us. The fact that God used his family and his life in a variety of ways, that's also true of us. And as I think about that, some questions come to my mind and ought to come to all of our minds. Questions like, am I the kind of family member that is positively influencing my family for Christ? That he can use to mold them into what they ought to be. Questions like, am I the kind of family member who is learning from the family God has placed around me? Am I allowing them, their influence, to mold me? Uh, Or questions like, do I recognize and accept and thank God for the fact that he has placed this family around me to mold me into what I need to be for him? Questions like, when was the last time I actually thanked God for the family God has placed around me? Because if it is true that God uses family to mold us, then we ought to be thankful for it. The fact that God used trouble in his life is also true of us. When was the last time when you actually thanked God for the trouble he brings in your life? When's the last time? How many of you would say you did that this morning? Thank you, Lord. We should. We should. Isn't that what James said? My brother encountered all joy when you fall into various trials. You see, the fact is, if we recognize that God is using all these things to mold us, if we recognize that he's using our work and our service and our ministry and whatever it is that he has us doing, if we recognize that he uses our friendship, we learned about those things last week, if we recognize that he uses our family and if we recognize that he uses the troubles and trials in our life, how do we not thank him? How do we not thank him for all of those things in our life? He's making us and molding us into the image of Christ. Just the same way he used them in the life of David. Paul said, we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. He said in Philippians chapter 1, I am confident of this very thing. 
that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. He is the potter. We are the clay. And he is molding us each and every day. Let me close the way I started last week with that little children's chorus that we sing so often. He's still working on me to make me what I ought to be. It took him just a week to make the moon and stars, the sun and the earth and Jupiter and Mars. How loving and patient he must be because he's still working on me.